All right, well, we are this week continuing our series on the Ten Commandments. If you remember from last week, you can find the commandments in Exodus 20. And we were discussing the sixth commandment last week, which is thou shall not murder. And you remember that we had, as we looked at those commandments, uh, we had begun to just deal with some of the issues that surrounded that commandment. Hey, we got someone in the front row. Yes, finally. Two people in the front row. All right. This is record-breaking day. (laughs) So anyway, as I was saying, last week uh, we started on the sixth commandment. We looked at uh, thou shalt not murder, and we discussed it. And I'd broken it down where the first week we looked at the positives and the negatives of the commandment. That is what it's telling us to do and what it's forbidding us from doing. And then we'd spent last week looking at just special issues uh, with the commandment. You know, things, uh, difficult situations where it can be sometimes hard to apply what the commandment is teaching. And we'd done that last week, and I, I thought it went really well. And what we're going to do with the seventh commandment is we're going to today start, sort of study what the commandment is saying, and then look at the positive injunctions of the commandment, namely what it's telling us to do. And then next week we'll look at the negatives and then some special issues with the commandment. All right. And our commandment for today is the seventh commandment, and it's in verse 14 of Exodus chapter 20. And it says this, You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. This is the commandment we're going to be spending now two weeks on. Now, when we want to study any commandment, any of the, these ten commandments, what I like to do when I start, and you've seen this as we've gone along, especially uh, the last two weeks, is I like to study what the whole Word of God has to say about this commandment. Right? What can we find out about it from other people who have in scripture discussed it and I can think of no one better to look at who teaches about this commandment than Jesus and so turn to Matthew chapter 5 right now Jesus in Matthew 5 is giving his sermon on the mount there's a lot of good teaching here about all kinds of things we were in Matthew 5 last week when we were looking at special issues with the sixth commandment and Jesus on this mount. I've been to the mount that Jesus gave this sermon on. It's in Israel. It's a mountain on basically right on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. You can kind of smell the sea air. Actually, no, it's lake air because the uh, Sea of Galilee is only seven miles wide. It's very small. It's not really a sea. But anyway, if you're standing on that mountain, you can imagine Jesus standing on the center and people all surrounding him wanting to hear his teaching that he has to say. And this is one of the things that he was teaching next to the Sea of Galilee in this beautiful country in Israel. He says this in verse 27 of Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body 
go into hell. That's kind of a sobering passage, a very sober teaching of Jesus. He didn't pull any punches there when he was preaching to the crowds. And we see a very important principle being taught in this passage, the same principle we saw taught last week when we looked at the commandment about murder. And that principle is this, that for all of the commandments, there is a profoundly internal aspect to them. In other words, when Jesus was teaching the Israelites, what what he's doing right here in this historical context, they were immersed in a culture of Judaism in which the Pharisees had the biggest say in terms of how to understand the Old Testament. And when the Pharisees came to the commandments of God, particularly the Ten Commandments, what they would do is they would say, these commandments, if you don't do the bare, naked, outward thing that the commandment forbids, then you have fulfilled the law. So, for example, when it comes to the commandment, you shall not murder, the Pharisees would say, if you haven't killed anybody, you've fulfilled the commandment. You haven't broken it. You haven't sinned. But Jesus came along just a little bit earlier in this passage and said, hey, you've heard it said, you shall not murder, but I say to you, whoever's angry with his brother has murdered him in his heart. So Jesus is upping the stakes on these commandments. He is raising the bar. He's saying not only do these commandments have an outward aspect, namely murder, or in this case, committing adultery, but the commandments themselves have a profoundly inward aspect as well, that they can actually be broken on the inside, that they can be broken in the heart. Now, Jesus isn't saying that hating someone is equal to murder, as if they both merit the same punishment. Right? Even in our own judicial system, we don't have the same punishment for hating someone versus killing someone. Right? That wouldn't be justice. But Jesus is still saying that even if you, in your heart, hate someone, or even if you, in your heart, lust after someone, you are still breaking this commandment. You are not fulfilling it just because you're not doing the outward thing that it's forbidding. Okay? That's what Jesus is trying to get across. And so there's a profoundly internal aspect to these commandments. And that is what Jesus teaches here. Now, when we look, when we look at the whole of Scripture, right, we can understand why there would be a commandment, you shall not murder. Right? That's a pretty basic human command. Every government on the planet basically has a law about murdering. You're not supposed to murder somebody. You know? And we can understand commandments, you shall not have other gods before me. But there are some commandments where we think, boy, if I was drafting the top ten commandments, why would I add adultery to that top ten list? What caused God to want to do that? You ever thought about that? Why is this so important to him? Adultery, protecting marriage, why is this so important? How many of you have ever heard of Hosea? That's right. I'm assuming everybody has heard of Hosea, right, if you've read the Bible. In Hosea, we read an interesting story, right? The prophet Hosea is raised up by God, and he's told by God to marry a woman, and the woman is basically a prostitute, right? And she is unfaithful to Hosea. And she runs off with another man, and God says, Hosea, go bring her back. Go get her again. Why is God telling him to do that? Well, the, the whole book of Hosea is a picture 
not of Hosea and the woman. But, I mean, I mean, they're real people, of course, but that's not the point. What God is trying to teach in the book of Hosea is that Hosea and his wife are a picture of God and Israel. <coughs> because Israel, frequently in the Old Testament, as we can see just by reading it, frequently abandons God, right? We all know that. We've studied it. We've heard it a hundred times. Israel is frequently abandoning God, leaving God, running from God. And the picture of Hosea and his wife is a picture of what God does for his rebellious wife, Israel. He goes after her. What's interesting is that if you look at the Hebrew of you shall not commit adultery, this commandment in Exodus 20.14, the word used for commit adultery in the Hebrew is actually, can also be translated practice idolatry. It's translated that way in Jeremiah a couple of times. So it's interesting that the word for commit adultery and practice idolatry can be the same word in the Hebrew. Now, it's translated correctly here, and we find that out from context. But what I'm saying is there's a close relationship for the Hebrew mind between committing adultery and practicing idolatry because God saw himself as married to his people. We can think about uh, even Paul in the New Testament in Ephesians 5 when he's talking about marriage. Let's, let's turn that really quick. Ephesians 5. This is verses, it's like verse 30, I think. Let's start at verse 28 of Ephesians 5. Listen to what Paul says about this. In the same way, this is verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now here, here's where Paul says this. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So even there, Paul is discussing this idea of marriage. What is marriage a picture of? What is it, if you will, a sign of? What spiritual reality does marriage point to? It points to Christ and the church, to God and his people. And that is what marriage was, or one of the reason, things that marriage was ordained to be. It was, it's a sign of the kind of relationship that God wants to have with his people. That's what marriage is supposed to be. They're supposed to influence and, and be uh, signifying of each other. And that's why God commands Hosea to go after his wife. Because God is showing that that is the kind of relationship God wants to have with his people. And that's backed up by Paul in the New Testament. And so this is one of the reasons why marriage is taken so seriously in Scripture. It's not a flippant thing. It's not just some human cultural invention. Marriage is something ordained by God in the Garden of Eden when the world was still perfect. And it was meant to be something that it reflects God's relationship with his people. And that's why in the Old Testament, you're going to find images about God being jealous. And here's why you find that. Proverbs 6, 32-35. Listen to what Proverbs says. He who commits adultery lacks sense. 
he who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a husband furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you may multiply gifts. So the passage is talking about the fury of a husband whose wife commits adultery. All right? You've seen this in, I mean, whether or not in real life, maybe you have seen it in real life, we've seen it in movies for sure, TV shows, where some wife commits adultery and the husband goes nuts and tries to kill the other person or something, right? This jealousy takes over and anger rises up in the husband and he wants to take out the man who committed adultery with his wife. That is what Proverbs here is talking about. That's why the one who commits adultery lacks sense, right? He's bringing the wrath of the husband upon himself. And that's why the scripture describes God as jealous for his people. He's jealous for his people like a husband is jealous for his wife. That when the people of God go whoring after other gods, other false gods, right? That's scriptural language, strong English words, but that's in the Bible. People of God go whoring after other gods. And God's jealousy emerges and his anger rises. Now, God doesn't sin in his anger. It's not bad anger where God you know, blows a gasket and then commits sin or something. But it's righteous wrath, a jealous wrath, because God is jealous for his people. So you can see there's a lot of rich symbolism in the Old Testament with regard to marriage, and indeed in the New Testament. And this is why, I think, this is why we see a commandment about adultery in the Ten Commandments, the top ten laws of what God requires from us as moral beings. That is, you shall not commit adultery. What is committing adultery? Well, it's destroying marriage. That's what, it, that's what result, the result is of committing adultery. It's destroying marriage. It, it's, it's ripping apart the foundations of something God ordained, and it's destroying the covenant that two people have made with each other. And that's a picture of what... And, and a marriage is a picture of, of God's relationship with us, and so... That's why we're not to commit adultery. It's a sign of that relationship, something that points to a spiritual reality beyond itself. Now, when we address this question, you shall not commit adultery, and we want to understand the teaching of Jesus, I have heard a case made at one point where someone said, well, the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, doesn't apply anymore. And Jesus, when he comes in Matthew chapter 5 and says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, X, Y, and Z, Jesus is adding to the law. He's adding something that wasn't there before. That he's saying something that is new, that was never required at the time. And I want to say that is not what Jesus is doing in Matthew 5 when, we, when we're trying to understand this commandment. Jesus is not adding to the commandment. He is not replacing the commandment with something new. One thing we ought to remember as Christians is that we are not Muslims. Okay, We are not Muslims. And I bet you didn't know that. But we are not Muslims because we don't believe in the doctrine of what's called abrogation abrogation. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of the doctrine of abrogation. I don't know if you even know what abrogation means. 
And if you don't, and you're wondering what it means, that's great, because I'm about to explain it. So abrogation is a doctrine that is taught in the Islamic faith. And abrogation comes from the Latin abrogare, which means to ask away, or to nullify, or to replace. And in Islamic theology, Allah, which is the name of their god, Allah is able to override previous things that he's said in a contradictory fashion. But whatever Allah has said most recently is what the truth is. But Allah can say something opposite to that later, and it still be the truth, and it nullifies and replaces the other thing he said before that. So just to give you an example of this, in the Quran, Allah says that human beings are created from dust, and then later it says they're created from a clot of congealed blood, and then later it says they're created from nothing, and then it says they're converted from a sperm drop, and then just all kinds of different ways that man is created. Now, how can, how can they be created from all those different things, right? It's contradictory. But for the Islamic faith, they say, well, we have this doctrine of abrogation. What Allah has said most recently is what's true. And I can't remember which out of the ones that I just listed is the one that's most recent. But they just say whichever one is the latest, that's the one that's the truth. Because Allah can override things that he's said in the past with new teaching. And that's just as true. Okay. Now, you may be wondering what in the world we're talking about this for. But here's why we're talking about this. Because many people when they come to the New Testament and they want to understand the the relationship between the New Testament and the Old Testament, they intuitively believe in this doctrine of abrogation because they'll believe, well, the New Testament replaces the Old Testament. The New Testament overrides the Old Testament. Jesus' commandments override Old Testament commandments. They replace them. They abrogate them. And that is not what we as Orthodox Christians believe. That is not what Christianity historically has believed. What we believe in terms of the relationship between the Old and the New Testament is that the New Testament fulfills the Old Testament. The New Testament fulfills the Old Testament. That is, The only things in the Old Testament that are not applicable to us in the New Testament are the things that Jesus has fulfilled. We don't just say, well, the Ten Commandments are in the Old Testament, therefore they don't matter. Well, no. They're part of the moral law. That is still required for us. Now, the sacrificial system, right? That's not required because Jesus fulfilled that. Read read Hebrews 10. You'll find out all about that. Jesus fulfilled that. The ceremonial law, that's fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled that. The civil law, that's fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled that. Right? So Jesus fulfills things. But that doesn't mean that everything in the Old Testament doesn't apply to us. Okay? So we don't believe in abrogation. We believe that the New Testament fulfills and expands upon and clarifies the Old. So when we're studying Jesus in Matthew 5, and he is saying, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you X, Y, and Z, Jesus is not saying, that commandment doesn't apply anymore. Here's a new commandment. No, what Jesus is saying is that that commandment, you shall not commit adultery, has always had an internal aspect to it. 
it has always meant that lusting breaks the commandment. This is not something new. This is not something Jesus just made up. This is not something that abrogates an old commandment. This is how it has always been, is what Jesus is saying. So when we're studying this commandment, we need to take seriously, this is what God meant right away when he issued the commandment to Moses on Mount Sinai and said, you shall not commit adultery. It it has always had, (coughs) excuse me, it has always had an internal and an external aspect. And that's a problem for us as sinful people, isn't it? Because there are many people in the world who have lived, many people alive today, many of us who will go our entire lives without committing adultery on the outside. But I guarantee you there's nobody who's ever lived except Jesus who lived their entire life without committing adultery on the inside. And that's why we need Jesus, right? That's why we need to be crushed by this. Because we need to see we are sinners. We can't do this in and of ourselves. That's why we need the sanctifying power of the Spirit to even strive to do this, which is what we're doing now. We're, we're trying to understand what this commandment is teaching and how we apply it to our lives, not because it's going to save us, but because we want, out of a joyful response to the gospel, to serve God because he has saved us. That's why we're doing this. So, you shall not commit adultery. Long story short, there's an internal and an outward aspect to this commandment. And we're going to see that as we look to apply it here. So, that's the commandment. That's the background that you shall not commit adultery. That's why marriage is so important to God. It's a picture of Christ and the church, of God and his people. And now we turn to looking at the positive injunctions of this commandment. The positive injunctions. There's a couple of fancy words there. It just means what the commandment requires us to do. What is it saying we are supposed to do? And that is, as we talked about two weeks ago when we looked at you shall not murder, it's an interesting question to ask. What does this commandment tell us to do? Because it's a negative command, isn't it? It's in its bare naked form here. It's a negative command. It's saying you shall not do something. So when we're asking about what the commandment tells us to do, Remember what we have to do? We've got to convert the commandment into a positive command. And we do that this way. First of all, this needs to be converted into positive command. So, pretty simple. You shall. Right, you shall. Now, just like in algebra, anything you do to one side, you've got to do to the other. What's the, the opposite of committing adultery? Being faithful. Yeah, being faithful, right being faithful to your spouse, so preserving marriage, or something like that. Being faithful, being chaste. I'm just going to write preserving marriage. We could put a whole bunch of things up here. Thou shalt preserve marriage. Okay? And this isn't, you know, contrary to scripture or anything, right? Because if we look at the commandment, honor your father and mother, we convert that into its opposite. It just means you shall not dishonor your father and mother. So it makes perfect sense logically to do this. And this is what our catechism does, is it converts the commandment and then asks the question, what is then required in the commandment? If we are to preserve marriage, what does that mean in our daily lives? What are very practical ways that we preserve our marriages, other people's marriages, and just the reputation of marriage 
in general. And that's what our catechism does. If you're interested, you can look up question 138 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. But here are the things that it lists out in terms of what is required of us in this commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Number one is chastity in body, mind, affections, words, and behavior. And that one there is a little bit loaded. Chastity is a word that we don't usually use in modern day English anymore so much. Right? It's a little bit more of an older English kind of word. Chastity, here though, just to briefly define it so we can know what we're talking about here. Chastity comes from the Latin costatos, which means fidelity or purity or um, lawful sexual uh, indulgence or something like that. And what, what it really means to the Romans who used the Latin word chastity is it meant a spouse's fidelity to his or her spouse. Right? A husband's fidelity to his wife. A wife's fidelity to her husband. Fidelity meaning faithfulness. Marital faithfulness. The Romans praised people in their day, the classical republic days of Rome. They praised women who had chastity, who weren't flaunting themselves, who were working hard to be faithful to their husbands. That's the, his the history behind this word. And that's what our confession is invoking in our minds right now. It's saying we need to be maritally faithful to our spouses in body, mind, affections, words, and behavior. Body, I think we all know what that means. Be faithful with our bodily actions toward our, toward our spouses in our mind. Right. So now we've got a distinction between body, which is the outward requirements of this commandment, to be chaste with our body, but we've got the internal aspect to be chaste, to be faithful in our mind. That's really hard if you have much experience with the mind. It's difficult. We are to be chaste with our mind. And that means not entertaining evil thoughts, unchaste, unfaithful thoughts in our minds. And it also means, like as we find out in the New Testament when Paul is discussing this issue about the mind, this also means we need to be careful about what we're taking into our minds. It's not just about what our minds spontaneously come up with, but it's also the kinds of things that we're taking into them, what we're watching, what we're listening to. That's hard too, isn't it? That doesn't mean that it's, I'm not saying that it's absolutely sinful to accidentally watch something or to be in a movie and something bad happens and all that kind of stuff, right? On a daily, continual basis, we need to be consciously thinking about the kinds of things we're taking into our minds. Because whether we believe it or not, psych psychological studies will tell you this, it changes us. What we are thinking about and what is coming into our minds via what we see is changing us, whether we realize it or not. That's why Paul says, think about whatever is lovely whatever is pure, whatever is right, whatever is desirable. Because he knows that when you do that, you're just making yourself pure and delightful and desirable and all those good things that God wants us to be. And so that means taken in scripture and all those sorts of things. But you get the idea, right? We're to be chased in our mind and we can cultivate that in a lot of different ways. Body, mind, affections. 
this is just a slight distinction from the mind, right? Because our affections are still in us. But what our catechism is warning us against is harboring unfaithful emotions. Maybe that means anger toward a spouse. Maybe that means, that would be an unchaste desire. We don't want to have that. Maybe it would be Twitter-pated feelings for someone who's not our spouse. That's also something we have to guard against. You remember last week when we were talking about murder, the reason why Jesus emphasizes the hatred of someone as breaking the commandment in a large deal is because hatred often leads to murder, right? Sin doesn't just spontaneously erupt out of nowhere. It is planted in the mind, and it grows, and pretty soon we do things outwardly that we'd never even imagined we could possibly do. You think about, I mean, if you ask anyone who's been in a situation where there was, you know, an ugly divorce or an affair, those kinds of things, it didn't just spontaneously appear. It grew. It went from something small to feelings, and then the feelings expressed themselves, and then all kinds of trouble happened. We are to guard ourselves to have faithful affections, making sure that our emotional attractions are for our spouse and not for anybody else. So chastity and body, mind, affections, and then secondly, words and behavior. We don't say things that are unfaithful to our spouse. And we behave in a way that's faithful to our spouse. You can fill in all of the blanks in that. There's, these are pretty wide, open-ended sort of things. But we need to be thinking about them. So chastity in a whole bunch of different ways, essentially. Uh, number two, preservation of chastity in ourselves and others. Now, we preserve faithfulness in ourselves by doing all the things we just talked about, right? We combat unchastity doing that, but this doesn't just tell us to preserve chastity in ourselves, but to do what we can to preserve chastity in other people, to preserve the faithfulness of other people to their spouse. And what's interesting is that if they see us being chaste, if they see us being faithful in mind and word and deed, that can be a motivating factor for other people to say, hey, you know what, that's what I need to do, right? So we need to do what we can to help preserve chastity in other people, not trying to tempt them by doing things we're not supposed to do, not flirting with other people who aren't our spouse, tempting them to be unchaste to their spouse, you see how this works? This is a lot of stuff here. We can fill in the blanks in a lot of different ways. Preservation of chastity in ourselves and others. Number three, watchfulness over the eyes and all the senses. Notice the Westminster Divines don't just say watchfulness over the senses. They highlight a certain sense, namely the eyes. And they do that because the scripture has a lot of things to say about how our eyes can lead us to be unchaste or think unchaste thoughts. Job 31.1 says, I, this is Job speaking, I have made a covenant <clears throat> excuse me, with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? I've made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? In other words, Job is struggling with the same sorts of things that people today struggle with. 
you think about it, Genesis was written about 3,500 years ago. That's a long time. Job was probably written before Genesis. It's probably the earliest book of the scriptures, just based on a lot of different things. And that means that, say, 4,000 years ago, people were still dealing with the temptation of looking upon other people with lustful thoughts. Jesus wasn't addressing a contemporary problem when he was talking about people who break the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, who look on a woman with lustful thoughts or who look on a man with lustful thoughts. Job is struggling with that 2,000 years before. And Job's way to combat this is he says, I have made a covenant with mine eyes. And that's a very poetic way of saying, I have decided I'm not going to look upon women in that way. I think today a lot of times people call this bouncing eyes. Have you ever heard of that before? Bouncing eyes where you, if you're looking around and then you see someone and like they're dressed skimpily or something and you're tempted to you know, look upon them with lust or whatever, you bounce the eye off and you don't look. Uh, that was what I was taught anyway. I don't know. Maybe that's not a thing down here. But that is, that is uh, <clears throat> what Job is saying. I've made an agreement with my eyes. I'm not going to look upon a mate. And he doesn't just say, I'm not going to. But he says, why am I going to look upon a mate? Why would I do it? How is that smart? How is that wise? How does that profit me in any way? That's a pretty serious question, right? The devil can tempt us with all kinds of things. He can say, no, man, if you were only with that person, your life would be so much better. And folks, I've watched situations where someone actually thought that and they went through with it and it destroyed so many lives. That's a lie. Job is right here. Why would I do that? That's so dumb. It's foolish. So make a covenant with not just your eyes, but all the senses is what our Westminster divines are telling us here. Watchfulness over the eyes. Watch the senses. Watch what you're looking at. Watch what you're taking in. Uh, Number four, temperance. Temperance is another one of those fun English words we don't use so much of anymore. But temperance basically just means self-control. Right? Controlling the temperature of your desires is essentially what it means. Self-control. Now, all of this stuff we're talking about could be wrapped up under the category self-control, couldn't it? It takes a lot of self-control to be chased in actions. It takes a thousand times more self-control to be chased in our minds and our affections because we have a culture surrounding us right now that's saying, no, you're a slave to your emotions. You're a slave to your desires. If it feels good, do it. Right? And that's not what the scripture teaches. When we live in a culture that is so influenced by atheistic evolution, they believe that people, when they have a desire for something, they should fulfill that desire because that desire is a manifestation of their own animal instincts because they descended from animals. If we have a desire, according to the atheist, we should fulfill it because it's just our biology. But the scripture doesn't teach that. The scripture teaches temperance, self-control, controlling our desires. And we do that in a number of ways by simply being disciplined, but That is a more practical way. What we really need to do is we need to study the scriptures and pray so that the Holy Spirit can work those right desires in us because we can't do that on our own. We need to pray for temperance, self-control. That's what's going to allow us to do all of these things. Number five, keeping of chaste company. Keeping of chaste company. We've all been told a hundred times, I'm sure, 
And this, I'm sure, is not just a northern thing. I think this is like everywhere. We've all been told that you become like the people you hang out with. Right? And there's all kinds of different clever ways of saying that, but that's the essence of it. You become like the people you hang out with. If you're hanging out with an unchaste crowd, a crowd that gets its kicks and giggles off of being unchaste, saying unfaithful things about their spouse or two other people, doing unfaithful things, well, I mean, what do you expect you're going to be? You're going to become desensitized to that, and eventually you may become part of it. And so our Westminster Divines tell us to keep chaste company. We need to watch who we're hanging out with because we want to be surrounded with people who are faithful to their spouses. That's an example to us and motivation for us to keep doing it. Keeping a chaste company. Six, modesty in apparel. Modesty in apparel. Now, one thing we need to recognize is that modesty in terms of how modest we are in what we wear is somewhat culturally defined, isn't it? You think about 150 years ago, women were not required to show, or were not allowed to show their ankles. <clears throat> it was considered to be extremely sexual, <clears throat> excuse me, to do that, to show your ankles. I'm seeing a lot of ankles this morning. All right, if we were 150 years ago, you all would be in trouble. But that's not how it is today, is it? It's not at all that way. I see a lot of women wearing pants today. That was completely immodest 100 years ago. Women were not allowed to do that in public. So modesty is definitely somewhat culturally defined, and so we, we have to study that and really think about it ourselves to come to firm conclusions about how we are to behave. But one absolute principle that I can think of that I, I know we, you can take to the bank is that modesty is also internally defined. Because it's not always just about what you're wearing on the outside that makes you modest, but it's about what you're thinking in terms of why you're wearing what you're wearing. Are you wearing this to, to get sexual attention from other people? Or are you wearing this simply just to look nice? There's a difference there too, right? If we didn't make a difference between wearing something for sexual uh, attention versus wearing something just to look nice, we'd all have to wear potato sacks or something everywhere we went. So we didn't make that distinction. But we should ask the question, why are we wearing what we're wearing? Are we trying to seduce other people to sin? Are we trying to seduce other people to be unfaithful to their spouses? And that's a serious question. And that's, that's really what we can take to the bank on this one in terms of modesty of apparel. Um, merit, uh, here's another one. Marriage by those that have not the gift of celibacy. And this comes from 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2, where Paul says, Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. But if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with lust. And so what Paul is talking about there is he's just talking about one of the practical uh, benefits of getting married. Is that if you're struggling deeply as a single person with you know, sexual temptations, one of the best things you can do is get married. Because then you have an outlet for that. This isn't Paul saying that's the only reason for marriage or that everyone has to get married, particularly for that reason, right? Because marriage was ordained by God in the Garden of Eden way before sin entered the world. But Paul is just talking about a practical implication. And in the Catechism, they're just saying, they're like, hey, if you want to preserve the integrity of marriage, 
And if you're struggling with this commandment of not committing adultery and not committing fornication, well, get married. <laughs> then you've got some help. So it's pretty practical advice, and I think it's a good one. Uh, we got a couple more here. Uh, I've lost count now. Seven, I think. Conjugal love. Conjugal love. Proverbs 5, verse 19. Let her... This is uh, the proverb um, giver speaking to a husband about his wife. He says, Let her be as the loving hind and the pleasant roe. Animals. Let her breasts satisfy you at all times, and be thou ravished always with her love. And why wilt thou, my son, be ravished with a strange woman and embrace the bosom of a stranger? I love that English word, ravished. Be ravished with the love of your spouse. How are you going to combat, you're going to preserve your marriage no better than doing that. Be ravished with your spouse. Uh, Third to last, cohabitating with your spouse. Not being, not living on the opposite sides of the country for very long extended periods of time. This is from 1 Peter 3, 7, where Peter says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. So not being apart for extended periods of time where you're prolonging the ability for Satan to erode away the foundations of a marriage. It doesn't mean you can't go on a business trip or something, right? But it's just saying, generally speaking, live with your spouse. Second to last, diligent labor in our callings. This is taken from the Proverbs 31 woman. Verse 11 where it says, The heart of her husband doth safely trust in her, so that he shall have no need of spoil. She looks well to the ways of her household and needs not the bread of idleness. Her children arise up and call her blessed, her husbands also, and he praises her. Diligent labor in our callings, that is, making sure we're not neglecting to put bread on the table and to fulfill what God is calling us to do in our lives and our vocations. Because when we do that, both husband and wife, whatever those vacations and vocations and callings may be, we're creating a solid home life of trust where the spouse can trust, where the heart of the husband safely trusts in the wife because he knows that she's working hard to provide for the livelihood of that family. And same with the husband, of course. And then finally, this one is just uh, pretty general. Resisting temptations. What's required when we're preserving marriage? Well, obviously, resisting temptations when they come against us. I think, as we close here, I think particularly of Potiphar's wife and the story of Joseph. I think this is, I want to say it's Genesis 39, but I'm not 100% sure on that. And what happened? Well, you know the story. Potiphar's wife came to Joseph and she wanted him to lie with her and she came day after day after day. And the scripture tells us that Joseph refused to lie down with her or even to be with her. He didn't even he didn't even have lunch with her, or be in the same room with her. He said, "No, get away." Resisting the temptation and finally the temptation became so strong, she's literally throwing herself on him. <clears throat> excuse me. Throwing herself on him and she's got his coat. She's ready to like just rip off his cloak. And what did Joseph do? He ran out of the house. He resisted that temptation to the max by completely getting out of the place that was trying to cause him to sin.
Now we can learn a lot from Joseph. And we can learn that sometimes that's what's necessary to get away from the temptation, to run out of the house. Because we are to preserve our marriages. That is what this commandment requires us to do. And sometimes to preserve the marriage, we just have to run out of the house. We have to run out of the place of temptation to get away from the people that are causing us to become unchaste in our minds or in our deeds, in our thoughts, or in any way, other way. Next week, we will look at the negative injunctions. In other words, what this commandment is forbidding. And we'll take a look at some special issues, particularly divorce, things like that. How does this commandment apply to those issues? And as we close here, all right, as, I, as I often like to do, I want to remind you, there's a lot of stuff in these commandments, isn't there? These commandments are like onions, right? They've got layers. And you peel back a layer and you find more stuff. And you peel back another layer and you find more stuff. And it can become to the point where it's like, how on earth am I supposed to do all this stuff? This is hard. This is a lot of commands. This is a lot of stuff required of us. We need to remember, right? When we think of the times when we haven't done this, we haven't lived up to these standards. When we think of the times that we won't live up to these standards in the future, this is where we remember the grace of Jesus, isn't it? Where we remember the gospel. And we say, there is grace when we've failed. Jesus paid the penalty once for all, for all the times we didn't fulfill any of these things required of us in the seventh commandment. And so remember that gospel truth, right? As, as a believer, we are forgiven of all of our sins, past, present, and future. But in remembering that, we also try our very best to follow the law of God. We will stumble. We will fail. But we always seek to be like Jesus and to work on our sanctification, okay? It's always important to remember that as we do this because it, this can sound like legalism, this can sound really harsh, but we're just trying to be lawful Christians out of a joyful response to what our Lord and Savior has done for us, all right? We're out of time. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not hidden from us what you require us to do, but you have told us and you've made it clear in your word how we can use our minds to figure out all of the implications of these massive commands. And Lord, I pray that you would help us today to follow them. Lord, cause your spirit to work in us to help us to recognize where we've failed and where we can do better. But Lord, always in every way, when we're doing this, remember, help us remember that we are not doing this to earn special favor with you. And we're not doing this because it will get us to heaven. We're doing this because we're already destined for glory. And Lord, help us to see that important distinction and to always in every way be motivated to do these things by the gospel. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.